And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. All right, we got Kira from Black Flag on today. She does ADR for films and television, which is automated dialogue replacement. You got it right, Bill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, she's also a dialogue editor, dialogue supervisor. I mean, it's 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 everything that is not sounds like everything that's not sound effects in post production. Yeah. So like, she's the one who makes sure you can understand what they're saying when you're watching television or movies, or when they have to replace stuff and they do that over the shoulder shot so you can't see their lips move. <laughs> Did she do those kung fu movies? No, I think she's better than that. No. Oh. Yeah, I think that they give that to the interns. Okay. She even mentioned something about they, you know, they do the the non curse lines for TV, and then you know they'll like throw in like an not the actor. I love that. There's that a, yeah, I love word. that there's someone walking around being like, <laughs> you know, when uh, Dan Aykroyd doesn't curse on the TV version of Ghostbusters, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Did Dan Aykroyd curse in the in the movies? I don't know if he's ever cursed. I don't know what happens when a, like an actor just refuses the curse. Is it okay to like dub him in with someone else? What if they refuse to? So there's a curse actor? Curse actor. And that's got to be a pathetic life. They kind of do that like with nudity when they have like the people that come in to like be the body doubles. That's what I thought of. This is, this is doing it with profanity. Well, I wonder if there's also on the other side, I wonder if there's, there's an actor that's so into their cursing that they're like, you can't adulterate my performance with, with G-rated words. Like Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I was like, who's the guy that says crap every time he says shit or fucker, you know? Like, I mean, definitely not Samuel L. Jackson. He'll do anything. Uh, these are the questions we should ask here. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a little the bit intro um, is better than the episode. <laughs> I was a little bit taken aback asking too many goofy questions. I had a we had a couple of silly ones. She had fu- she fully admitted she doesn't have much of a sense of humor. You said you said you said she said she was going to talk about DC movies. I was going to, and then I got afraid of. I was like, scared. I was going to ask her DC versus Marvel. <laughs> I wanted she, to she know. She kind of started off like I wanted to know if they're going to make a matter eating land feature. Well, you could have asked it, Charlie. I didn't have to set you up. Well, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm not just going to come in there and say something out of the blue. Oh, like when you start talking about, <laughs> about silent films? That was relevant. Don't talk about dialogue. She, was, did like your, she did like your Attica comment, though. She actually laughed at that. I think that's the only time she laughed. Just give away the whole episode. <laughs> I love but that for we, you. We, that's we, the whole episode. <laughs> we're putting all of this part, all of these parts on the Patreon only. Five bucks. <laughs> Let's roll the tape. Kira, we usually start this out with you introducing yourself and telling everyone what you do for a living. My name is Kira. What I do for a living is dialogue 
editing and or ADR recording, supervising editing as requested by my superiors at any given show for any given movie or TV show. Are those things that are usually grouped together? Do people who do dialogue usually do ADR and vice versa? That's a good question. In the past, teams were much larger than they are today. So you had pretty strong delineations. But these days, it's often one person doing all of it, or it's a person responsible for all of it who then hires out editor to work under them. And they may do the dialogue editing primarily, or they may do both. It just depends on how that supervisor works. So if uh, so, if I'm asked, I prefer to do both, even if I then have to ask uh, and hire help, because it, it ultimately works very closely together. If you have an ADR line happening in the middle of some dialogue, you want that those seams to be seamless in terms of people being able to tell even down to the breath right so you can't you don't want things doubling up etc so it's good that one person sort of in the end makes sure it's all working together did you ever do the title cards title cards are a visual thing and then the what's the dialogue we should explain what adr is the dialogue on the movies i watch are title cards Oh, you're talking about like uh, subtitles. Well, silent movies. Oh, yeah, I don't work on silent <laughs> movies. I work on uh, movies with spoken dialogue, generally. <laughs> that seems to be the... So, so you, ne- you never worked with H.M. Walker, I'm assuming. I have not. Well, talkies seem to be the prevailing medium these days, so I think we'll focus on Damn those. It. And everything's been downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, Charlie, had, you had a story about about the actor. Didn't you have a problem in the movie theater with with the actor? Yeah, I went to see the artist, and there's all these old people there because that's what you get when you go to see a movie like that in Kew Gardens. So these old people, some old people were talking, and these other old people got mad because it was it was uh, they couldn't hear the movie, and they were yelling at them. And they were fighting. They started fighting, and they made a big stink about it. And I was like, "What's the big deal? There's no word sound anyway. He's not disturbing you." And then it uh, happened to be that in the theater down the aisle for me, Curtis Lewa was there just by coincidence. And I looked over to him and I'm like, can't you take care of this? Let's let's focus here. ADR, what, what does that stand for? It stands for automatic dialogue replacement. And, and it's generally used for two purposes. One, to solve a technical problem that might have been recorded on the day on the set. Or it is a uh, added or changed line that the creative folks, the director and other creatives decide they want to add or change uh, in the studio after the fact. Do, do a lot of people get confused? Like, you know, like a lot of people's parents have trouble explaining what their their children do. Do a lot of people get confused with ADR versus like other sound effects? Like a Foley artist, for example? A lot of people can't understand what dialogue editing is at all because, right, don't you just record it on the set? What do you need a dialogue editor for, right? So that's often very difficult to explain. And We explain that like every podcast, don't we? I don't do a lot of podcasts about dialogue editing. You'll be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like every podcast we're saying... We're going to heavily edit this, so don't worry about what you say because we're going to cut it out. Yeah, the, the speech that we gave Kira, it sounds like you give that a lot. To no, a lot because artists, it's quite right? different. That dialogue editing is mostly because the way TV shows and movies are recorded, right, is that in any given scene, they do coverage 
from close-ups and far-outs and and two shots and and close, you know, all of these different angles, right? And then it's cut together by a picture editor so that when I receive it, it sounds like... It basically sounds like Frankenstein cut together this set of sentences. So you have to actually smooth it out and turn it into uh, a a scene from what was not recorded in one shot, you know, on the day, but rather was made up of, you know, maybe 20 different takes of the scene that were cut together by the picture editor and the director. And so that is, there's some work to do to get it to sound like just a scene that was recorded from top to bottom. I mean, that's really interesting in terms of looking at the different challenges that you have to face. So I'm looking at one of the things that you won an Emmy for was the Blackwater episode of Game of Thrones. Now, I remember that episode being crazy. I mean, there's a lot going on in that episode from like a battle and like lots of, you know, external noises and everything. How do you approach that? And how does that process go from sound? Does it start with sound effects and then the dialogue goes afterwards or vice versa? Well, no. I mean, if you think of it from the standpoint of the uh, the picture, right? So what happens first is that the director and the picture editor sit down and cut together the stuff that they shot on set, right? So they have the battle, if you will, and the battle, they cut it together from all this different coverage they did, angles, etc., and come up with this cohesive start to end battle, which is made up, like I said, of a bunch of different coverage. And then that is handed off to both the sound effects people and the dialogue people, the sound effects people start to add on sounds that are appropriate to what they're seeing. And the dialogue people set to the task of cleaning up what is there and just, and suggesting what needs to be added. I need to add all those background people yelling and I need to add efforts for all those people being killed. And, you know, so, so then we go in the, to the studio to record ADR and what's called loop group or walla, right. To, to get the, all the background people to make sounds. Cause that on the set, they all didn't say a word or make any sound. Do you know when they used Ideally. to have silent movies, the director used to yell at the actors, tell them what to do because nothing was being recorded. Right. True that. Do, do, do any do any of the directors still do that in your experience? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, there'll be especially in a scene that maybe there isn't a lot of dialogue. You'll I'll have I still have to cut the material right to, to have the footsteps and the hand pats and the door opens or whatever. All that production material is still salvaged. So the director might say, OK, now in the middle of that and I now have to fill in that hole in the material with something that doesn't have the director talking, but still matches with the movement uh, and the sound of what's there around that. So yeah, that happens quite a bit. I have that worked on uh, movies with uh, animals and animal trainers, and they're talking to the uh, animals and that all has to be cut out. Uh, so, so that still happens, even in talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll get more into your job now, but I want to jump back and start at the beginning of your career. So if we're looking at, you know, the 
the end of Black Flag. So you you are or you're at the end of your time in Black Flag. You were in school the entire time you were in the band, correct? Uh, on and off. When I was on tour, I was not in school. Uh, we would take quarters off and go on tour. But yes, I was uh, I was technically a UCLA student the whole time. And when you graduated, so you were done with the band or you've been kicked out at that point, you're graduating. What was your degree in and, and what were your next steps in your mind? So it was a, a degree in economics and computers. And my plan was, well, if I wasn't going to play music, my backup plan was to... Uh, have a computer capacity because I figured, well, there'd be lots of jobs in computers. So, uh, so my first job out of college after I was finished, uh, which I had one quarter to go when I was uh, kicked out of Black Flag. So I finished and then I started, did my first computer job and I worked in computers for 11 years, programming and database design, stuff like that. And was that something that when you got into it, were you kind of like, I know I've heard other interviews and, and read other other interviews where you've talked a little bit about it and you basically you know said it wasn't for you and it was very corporate and all of that um how was the day-to-day did you hate it immediately was it something you grew to hate did you well, not hate no. it but- i mean of course hindsight is is everything but in hindsight it's not the work itself that is corporate obviously it's the company that hires you and 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 what i realized was that i ended up working for companies for whom the software we were developing right it wasn't their product i was working for say an alarm company or or a media buying company and these companies so so the computer department within those corporations is basically just a cost center that is resented as to you know taking too much time and money out of their day-to-day operation what i realized was if i had worked for a software company you know, it might have been different. It, there's, it's a creative field, but I was working on business computing and I was generally working for some corporation whose job was to do something else. And my little computer stuff was just a side thing to the business. And, and so I became, I was sort of a cog in a very large wheel. And that's where it became uh, obvious over the years that that wasn't best for me to work in, in be kind of invisible and, and have my work not necessarily matter. So it wasn't for me in terms of being working in some corporation in a sort of invisible way. And and that's great for people who just want to sort of punch in and punch out and and you know, be invisible. Some people want to do that and it and it's perfect uh, for them. But for me that that was sort of unsatisfying and I had several big projects canceled after we're, you know, putting a lot of blood, sweat and tears into them. And, and it just became clear that it wasn't for me. Uh, after the fact, I realized that perhaps if I had worked, like I said, on a, for a software company, it would have felt totally different. I was going to ask about Black Flag. I feel like the members of Black Flag was, were always expected to work really hard. Do you think that, you know, Greg's uh, expectation helped you in the long run? Well, I mean, before I was in Black Flag, they were my favorite band. And and certainly there was an aspect of their approach that was appealing. In other words, they treated it very much uh, professionally and like uh, something that um, you gave your heart and soul to. 
and that was attractive even as a fan. And then, uh, and and I knew those guys. And so then, when the opportunity arose, they were exactly the kind of organization that you know was attractive to join. I, again, the idea of joining a group of people just to hang out didn't appeal to me. For me, it's like if I'm going to dedicate. <laughs> A bunch of time and energy i want to have something to show for it and those people were already committed in that same way so we had similar goals in terms of let's you know kick some ass <laughs> do you feel like you missed out on your college experience <laughs> well no i mean i was three years in so i had had a, a quite a bit of college experience and been in bands the whole like the time. Greek, you didn't do the Greek life though. <laughs> oh, you, uh, you should have seen me getting poured out of the van at the end of tours over by the, and the sorority girls just looking at me in horror as I get poured out of the, into UCLA and they're all in their espadrilles and, and, you know, looking like girly girls. And I look like I've just crawled out of a van with a bunch of guys. And uh, that was true pretty much every tour because we scheduled it like that. And, 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 you know, it would literally end on my first day back. <laughs> and uh, so, no, I, I wasn't a sorority girl. And there were really only a couple of punkers uh, at UCLA that I knew of anyway that I ever ran into. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really fit in, but I didn't fit in in high school either. So. Do you think uh, now that you're you know kind of in the film industry, do you think the things that attracted you to that are similar to the stuff that attracted you to punk rock? Um, you know, I fell into I fell into computers somewhat accidentally and I fell into to this work somewhat accidentally. I uh, my brother was actually composing for this little student film for this guy and asked me to come play bass you know that and 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 I met this guy who was who was doing very small had a small little business going doing sound on student films basically he was still at USC film school and uh and I met this guy and we dated for a while and I got to know what that was all about and it seemed like such a great mix of the computer and the audio kind of experience seemed to be a really good fit. So I, I begged him to hire me and and took a you know seventy five percent pay cut to to do so. Any uh, any regrets in that? In hindsight, uh, no. It, like I said, it was getting to the point where uh, the corporate world was didn't seem right and here was this thing that seemed much more creative so it was it was just something that kind of fell into my lap but then seemed like a really good fit so so no regrets it it seemed and still does seem to suit my personality somewhat i mean especially the part of working alone in my room that's not all of my job but that's my favorite part of my job <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever hit those moments though? I feel like I'm pretty antisocial to a certain extent and 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 um you know if given, you know, my wife will tell me all the time. She's the one with the friends, I'm the one that she drags along to hang out with her friends and their husbands. I always thought, you know, my dream is like the Burgess Meredith episode of the Twilight Zone where it's just like me alone with records and books and whatever, you know, and, and being able to absorb that. I, I like my own company. But the pandemic kind of changed. I mean, I, I got to, I finally hit a point. I never thought this would happen, but I kind of hit a point towards the end of like being stuck in my house where I was like, you know, I think I could kind of go see people now. I feel like I'm up for it now. Did you, did you hit a moment like that? 
No, no. It's, <laughs> I mean, look, I don't live alone. Maybe if I lived alone, it would be different. I have a husband, a wonderful husband and three wonderful dogs. So I'm not alone. I have a, I have companionship, if you will. So, so I can't speak for how it would be if I was completely alone. But I take my walk with the dogs and I the life gets filled in I've got my music uh which I'm still very involved in I play my bass I record songs I you know putting out my first solo record shortly you know oh congratulations so you know it's there's plenty to do I guess and in that way I haven't gotten tired of my own company because I never feel sort of without being behind on all of the things I want to get done. So when you decided to go, you know, when you decided to leave computers and, and, and get into sound and you took the pay cut and you did all that, that seems like you kind of, it's kind of punk rock to be like, screw the safety net. Cause you probably had a comfortable job trajectory that you could have kept going on forever and, and, you know, made a, made a, a safe, decent living. You took a chance instead. Is that something that you felt comfortable? I mean, do you, do you do that? You know, have you done that before in your life and kind of just shake, shaken everything up and decided, yeah, you know, I went on tour with <laughs> 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 I mean, yes, it's, it's, bit, it's very, I would agree with you. It's very punk rock in the sense of I, my personality was nonconformist from a very young age. So, so as to whether it was punk rock or not, that was not something I was aware of. But in terms of making decisions that involve fitting in, that was never uh, that was never a consideration. So yeah, I I am someone who, having been very poor because of said you know touring and black flag and previous years of of extreme poverty, I was very conscious of of the cut and pay and the risk I was taking because most people who work in sound are freelance, were not guaranteed jobs or income, you know? So the, yeah, it was definitely, there was an element of sort of financial insecurity associated with it. But in terms of, you know, putting the financial aspect aside, it suits my personality very much to just buck the trend of staying with some one way and taking a new way, you know, at any given time. The film industry's tough business. You know, like what is getting hired on films look like? You know, you're established now, but like how much hustle is actually involved in reality? Um, well, I'm yes, established, but no, not really, because nobody's, you know, again, well, I'm freelance, right? So like my job's gonna finish in the middle of July and I don't have the next thing lined up. I have something lined up in the fall and I may end up with with some time off, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like one of the things I learned about myself and uh, worked well with this business is that I work with a set of people and I work on a project and then I'm done. And then there's some, some time off and you learn to just appreciate it when you have time off and not to not stress about the financials because soon enough, you're going to be uh, just working all the time. So you have to enjoy the downtime and make use of the downtime. So, um, so in that way, it's, real. Again, it, it's still it, real. It's, it's my personality. <laughs> I can take some time off and work on music for a while, you know, but no. So getting a job, it's almost the scary thing is there's almost no path to getting a job. Even now I have a somewhat of a reputation that helps me. Sometimes people get in touch with me because of that. I have what, what I consider to be benevolent competition, which means there are several people who do what I do, who 
might recommend me if they were offered a job that they couldn't do. They might say, hey, you should hire Kira. So that's one way. And then I have some people that I have worked for before who will hire me again. But that uh, that stuff changes. Yeah, I just lost last year someone who I worked on some big movies for and was hoping to keep working for and he's gone. So life is still proceeding and and there's no guarantee. But it sounds like there's some benefits there too, right? You do get the time off. <laughs> it's not all, it's yeah, not all I scary. Mean, you have to, no, you have to appreciate the time off. And, and, and if you're, like I said, I'm lucky. My reputation is pretty good. I have some people who will recommend me and I'm pretty confident the next job will come. And, and so during the time off, you just go, okay, this is all the stuff that I want to do now that I'm not working 10 hours a day. Is there an artistic component to what you do that fulfills you creatively in your job? Or is that completely compartmentalized and separate from your music and your creativity in your personal life? So um, dialogue editing is kind of like a puzzle. So it's creative in the sense that I am handed a million problems and it's just how many can I solve by the time the mix comes, you know? So, so there is an element of creativity. I would say it's a very different kind of creativity. So it, it doesn't necessarily sit in the same place that music does. It doesn't have the emotional outlet kind of aspect that, that writing a song might, or, you know, expressing myself through music does but it does have that sort of that puzzle aspect and i do like that and 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 i always say i can do good work whether or not it's a good movie you know or a good show like that so the challenge is can i make this stuff sound really good i mean i'm currently working on a project that i think has got some of the worst production sound i've ever heard and, and <laughs> it doesn't bum me out or after the first day it doesn't bum me out it's the, it's like okay what can i do to make it as good as possible and then you know and have my boss hopefully go wow you did a lot of great stuff to help save a lot of this dialogue so we don't have to ADR the whole movie. I almost feel like uh, there's been someone that's recorded an album of mine that's probably said the same thing. Oh, the music's crap, but I made it. I made the guitar sound great. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we've all had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always notice the bored look in the audio engineer's eyes when he's... <laughs> when he another she's working. another guitar one? player. Well, exactly. <laughs> So, so would, if it's a really bad movie, that would be more downer than if it's really bad uh, sounds? Um, I don't really get caught up in the content of it being a bad movie either. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, if it, the movie's very good, it is a joy. You know, working on Al Pacino dialogue is very satisfying. <laughs> 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 one of my early, and I say that because one of my earliest jobs, I was uh, I worked on an Al Pacino movie, and I was so just. Is that the one where he said Attica? <laughs> no, no, that was a long time ago, Charlie. <laughs> you're a funny guy. Yeah, but that, that's like one of his most repeated lines. You're a that's funny true. guy. <laughs> <laughs> now, anyways, uh, so but it. it if the, even if the movie is one that I would not enjoy as a consumer, like I said, I, I can do really great work and I can uh, love the clients. They can be really sweet and kind and appreciative. You know, there's all sorts of aspects to the project aside from is it a good movie or not? And does the sound community, like, you know, does, does the sound community, obviously they understand that. So if you say you worked on something, they're not judging you obviously based on the, the movie or how well it did or anything like that. But if they've, if they've seen it or they, they know the challenges involved with it, that's going to be a different metric for how they judge 
your abilities, obviously. Well, people don't necessarily know how bad the production sound is. Hopefully, they I bet never... you. I bet you, if they don't know, you've done your job. Exactly. That's I mean, right. The thing about dialogue is, no news is good news, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, if nobody ever notices any problems, you've done a great job, right? And if and if there's a lot of problems, then maybe you haven't. Uh, haven't solved uh, the puzzle as well as you could have. That was an, like another early lesson was I had sent, uh, sent my dialogue reel to the stage and I talked to my supervisor at lunch and I said, so, so, did anyone say anything? And he said, oh yeah, they're <laughs> quoting you a banner, right? <laughs> and I got it. I'm never going to hear, wow, great job in dialogue <laughs> not going to happen. But you have won Emmys and your team won an Oscar. So how do they decide that? Is it a popularity contest? Well, Oscars, uh, uh, Oscars are almost purely based on uh, sound effects or music. If you look over the course of the, of the sound awards and the sound editing awards, they tend to be a lot of action movies or, or very complex. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road was a very uh, sound effects driven movie. Uh, nobody knows how hard the dialogue was or the fact that it's 90% ADR and I had 60 takes per line and worked with the director for 10 weeks solid in a room selecting the ADR and and, and the, what I had to do to make it all in sync because he chose to record it all basically wild, meaning not to picture. So nobody knows my <laughs> struggles in that and nobody, it, nobody said, I'm going to give them the Academy Award because of that ADR. It didn't happen, you know? Uh, but I would say that the uh, the golden reels, which are this uh, sound award that sound people give you, that's a popularity contest. Um, the Emmys and Academy Awards tend to be both, you know, sort of popular and known movies, right? That Mad Max was a well thought of movie. That and Revenant were the big movies that year. Um and Game of Thrones was a popular TV series. The other uh, Emmy I have is for John Adams miniseries. And that was also a well thought of, highly critically acclaimed uh, show. So there's definitely an aspect of it having to be something that a lot of people saw. Uh, so content matters. Very bad content isn't necessarily going to get nominated, even if the sound is really good. So the final product counts the whole thing. Yeah, it does. It, it's definitely maybe not popularity, but but critical acclaim is a factor. Now, when you get that Academy Award for sound, is that like one of the ones that they give you at that dinner and not the ceremony that's on TV? The sound award is <laughs> given in the main uh Academy Awards, but it is given to supervisors only. The team helped create the work, but the supervisors get the hardware. So the sound awards is handed to the sound supervisors of that. So what what, um, what award do they give at the dinner? Uh, well, the technical awards yeah. don't include sound awards. Oh, okay. The technical awards. See, we would assume that the technical award included sound. No, actually, the, the, the picture, both the picture editing and the sound editing is still part of the main Academy Award. If you watch closely, there will be a sound award given. <laughs> oh, well, they, they, well, you see, they, we don't watch it because we don't want to see those supervisors. We want to see the real people. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to you'd Protest. have to go to the Golden Reels, which is the sound the Sound Geeks Awards. 
Is that a buffet? Because <laughs> that's, that's I could be persuaded bucks, to go, you know. That's a 200 bucks a head sit-down dinner that you can pay for. Oh, that's one of those ones that they pay. They make you pay for the privilege of getting awarded. I heard the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the same way. you got to buy a table even if you're nominated. Well, name me an award that doesn't do that, Dave. <laughs> the, my experience for the few times that I have gone is that the uh, oftentimes the company like Warner Brothers or whoever will invite nominated shows and, and will give you tickets. I got I got tickets when I was nominated for those, but not to the Academy Awards. Yeah, but, but somebody's paying for it. Yes. Is that a- but, the, but it's it's like promotion, right? They're promoting their uh, presence as, hey, Warner Brothers bought six tables uh, and put their nominated people to sit there amongst the sound geeks. Is that your nightmare, though? I mean, you said you like working alone and everything. Is it's, that it's is being in a room like nightmare. that terrible? I promised myself I'm never going to go again. The last, the last time I went, oh, my God, I was sick on top of it. I was really <laughs> oh. sick. But I thought we had a really good chance to win. So I dragged my husband and I, my husband literally got my outfit together because I was working so hard and I was so uh. sick. <laughs> and he helped me get an outfit. And we went to these awards and sat there for hours and hours and hours. And then, of course, being that it was a popularity contest, I am not popular. Well, so well, so in <laughs> in that sense, what's worse, being in a room full of really opinionated people that want to talk to you about Black Flag or really opinionated people that want to talk to you about the movies and TV shows you've done? Well, if it involves like being at a club with a lot of people and loud music and people who are drinking a lot, I'll probably pick the same <laughs> They're slightly more polite and, and sober. And honestly, the, it's the volume of, you know, in clubs and at gigs that is almost untenable to me now. My ears are just, uh, they've done their time and, and they don't really want to do it anymore. To that end, are you, are you done touring you think i mean is that something that for instance i know that the second dose records getting reissued on kill rock stars is that something like would you tour again for that or is that done well those never toured we did play out of town but we never actually did those tours we traveled to europe a couple times i haven't played live in years and and it's sort of my intention not to play live anymore basically i mean it's not like a it's not a political stance <laughs> would, you, would you consider dubbing yourself into the show afterwards <laughs> now if we could come up with a way that i could be at home and be playing live at the same time look playing holograms. live is a really have- great experience and it's and it's very satisfying in a lot of ways so it's hard to it's hard to not do that anymore because during that time while you're on stage it is sort of magical but there's a lot that goes into it right that isn't during that time especially touring right the actual time that you're on stage let's say you're on stage for two hours which black flag would play the other 22 are brutal but you see yeah but you're you're saying the greatness of a live show and the same thing go with the dialogue like you try to keep that dialogue that was recorded on the set versus dubbing it is that like something you really try oh, to oh yeah i mean and that's not just me i mean the directors are so in love with their production sound that they will fight you tooth and nail uh, actually the mad max guy was a, an unusual exception uh, because he has some background in animated which of course is all adr so he was actually quite pro adr but 99% of directors hate ADR, don't want to do it. Whenever you say, look, we have to record this, it just sounds really bad, they'll say, well, can't you fix it? <laughs> yeah. 
this movie i'm working on right now we're recording quite a bit of adr not all of it and and we probably won't end up using it all because they'll be satisfied enough with what i've done on the dialogue side and they'd rather use their production sound but did you feel like it's like better to have something that's from the production that's not quite well, sure. as good well, audio. One thing it matches the picture. <laughs> I mean, you can you can spend years editing ADR. Will never look perfectly in sync the way the actual take on the day did. Now, I have a couple friends who worked as ADR recordists, so they would be the ones that would actually be, I guess, recording the actors as they come back in to do their lines. Are you in the room for that as well, or do you usually get the product of that afterwards to work with? Well, if I'm being the ADR supervisor, then my job is to cue the ADR, in other words, to create a list of places in the movie we need to go in and record and type up the lines we're going to record and then to show up on the day with the director, general and the actor and as they're recording lines um, my input is usually restricted to is there is it syncable and is it matching in things like projection right is the person talking very softly whereas in the rest of the dialogue they're projecting like this you know and it's like well wait a minute you're gonna have to project a little more or less so I give them technical input uh, and then the director decides things about performance and the emotional content of the line. But yeah, you go and you take notes for the director. And then then after the fact, you get it and you edit it based on those notes. He selected take number three out of 10, let's say. And so I prepare take number three and maybe I prepare some alternates in case that might not work. And so I have some stuff in my back pocket and then... Uh, and then we go to the mix and we make the final decisions. So you'll take, so you'll make that decision. So sometimes even if the director's like, that's the take, you'll, you'll be like, you know what? Let's, let's hedge our bets here and get some other stuff that we can work with down the line. Well, uh, um, all takes are very common. So, so in a way, I'm just saving myself time. If I prep some good alt takes ahead of time, then when we get to the mix and he says, yeah, I don't like that one. What else do you have? Then I already have that prepared. If I don't have that prepared, I'm going to have to go dig up the alts on the fly with everybody kind of waiting for me. I'm going to have to hurry up and throw up a bunch of others for him to listen to to make the final decision on or he'll go back to production so the so so for the most part even if the actor hates doing adr they're not yelling at you they're going to be yelling at the director oh they yell all the time they come up with you know i've, I've been accused of being paid by the line that i've queued <laughs> <laughs> I've, you know, you get, you get all of it. You get the eye rolling. I got, I had one actress decide that she didn't, she thought she could improve upon the original production. So she, so she performed it in this quite different way. And I just suggested that we might want to record a version, a take where it was a little closer to the original, knowing that it wasn't going to match on her mouth because, you know, she's just going, she's sort of changing the performance um, and have her say, no, no, I like this better. <laughs> And nobody backs me up usually, and then you know we end up using production. <laughs> have you have you ever listened to the uh, Orson Welles Frozen Peas commercials? Sounds familiar. <laughs> Is that I the one where, he, where he gets really drunk and keeps uh, keeps screwing up the lines? Yeah, no, he's just he's he's just accosting the the engineers the entire time. So he's like, you know, right. the depths of your ignorance, and does that make you appreciate being locked in the room for ten hours even more? 
<laughs> by yourself. Look, ADR sessions are really different. Go group ADR sessions when you're doing the background people. You got 20 people in the room and you've trying to wrangle them and get them to do what you're trying to do. And then the mixing stage, you're oftentimes there with the mixers and the clients for you know, 10, 15 hours a day for a month. So that's the real sort of long haul social interface that I find challenging is that is that the mixing uh, part of it can be because you just got to be on all day. And and it's it's this weird combination of high stress and total boredom because you're not <laughs> mixing. I, I'm sitting there. I'm not mixing. Right. So you're really, really bored. And then the director says, so Kira and everybody turns to you and you're suddenly on the spot for that minute. And every minute counts on mixing stage because it costs like, you know, $3,000 an hour to be on the mixing stage. So you have to scramble to hurry up, deal with whatever the crisis is in the moment. And then you can go back to being bored. So it's just not, uh, it's not my favorite part of the process. It's like I'm being a fireman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How does it work with the actors? Are they like under contract that they have to come back for so much ADR time after the movie? I mean, what is... Most contracts uh, have a day of ADR built in. And one day you can get a lot of lines recorded. Most of them end up coming in for maybe three hours tops. You know, even the primary actor will coming in for maybe three hours. Again, some of the side actors will come in and have five lines and get it done in half an hour. Um, the group days are usually one to three days of, of that hell. <laughs> Depending on how many crowds you have in the movie, you know, whether you have a lot of bar scenes or crowd scenes or, you know, beach scenes or whatever, how many people you actually see on the screen. Is there any time like the, you have to call them back in again and they refuse to do it or they refuse to do it even though it's in the contract? Uh, yeah. And then they pay. <laughs> do you have to get someone else that sort of sounds like them to do their lines? <laughs> I don't think you, I don't know if you want to talk about that if it happens. <laughs> I just kind of want to know. We could cut it. <laughs> Has there ever been a uh, doppelganger? So, so um, the actors are, it happens all the time. It's generally driven by the clients if they have to come back, not by me. And then they, the clients pay them and then they generally are professional and show up. They might be, you know, begrudging about it. And as for the doppelgangers, I certainly have had to record um, sound-alike actors for a couple of things. They'll oftentimes for the TV coverage, the swear words, big actors will generally have a sound-alike that does that for them. Or your loop group people, your voice actors, your professionals will uh, do a lot of the efforts, the fight efforts, stuff like that, and replace uh, stuff for the primary actors. Uh, some actors love to do all the their coverage and don't want to they always get the opportunity to do it but if they don't want to do it then they can have someone else do their death screams or whatever <laughs> so is, 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 that, is that like kind of like a stuntman the guy comes in and does the screams for the, yeah, well, is, is like voice, rich, yeah, is like rich, rich little getting any work here voice replacement is uh, you know uh, voice actors do quite well you know they they're sag uh actors who you know get paid pretty well to do exactly that to match you send them a sample of the actor and they're pretty good at matching a lot of times during the early phases of dialogue uh and they'll do some some sound-alike work 
so they save that one day till late in the process and they'll do some temp ADR to try out lines that they're putting in or whatever. And they'll have a sound alike uh, record stuff just as uh, placeholders to see if they like uh, their ideas. Is there ever a situation where the stuntman and the sound alike are the same person? Not that I know of. That would be awesome. Yeah, well, they, don't get to use their, they don't get to use their own voice. They're like, that's my body, but not my grunts. Yeah, well, I mean, it'd be kind of cool if they did both, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, like some still... of these people have like an actual like you know the same person do their stunts all the time, right? I actually met somebody's. I met Martin Sheen's stunt double on uh, from way back in uh, Apocalypse Now, and he was uh, telling some stories about that time, and he did all a lot of Martin Sheen's stunt. Martin Sheen had a heart attack in the middle of that movie. Yeah, and he yeah, makes he some did. weird sounds. Needed him a lot. He makes some weird sounds in the hotel room in the beginning of that movie. <laughs> He's like they're trying to get him back. <laughs> I don't know why that that stuck in my head. That actually is something that I can remember the sounds that he makes in the hotel room in the beginning of that movie. So I bet that stuntman wanted to do those sounds too. Yeah, that's true. Well, I know they still. I mean, there's a website devoted to people who still use the Wilhelm scream in certain movies and TV shows as well, which is that death scream that everybody knows that they used in like westerns originally. Sound uh, sound effects editors consider it a personal challenge to find the appropriate place for Wilhelm screen. That is still absolutely a, <laughs> a thing. That's awesome. So they try and like like an Easter egg, they try and hide it in there? Yeah, I mean, they try to place it so <laughs> that it's so perfect that they won't, that the clients won't uh, bump on it, you know, and they won't go, no, 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 I don't want that. You know, the, the ideal thing is to put it in such a way that, that, it, yeah, it's sort of slide. That's through. amazing. <laughs> All right, I have an ADR controversy. Okay, can we? Is it possible we could dub that Wilhelm scream in right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you: if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only five dollars a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. So according to the most recent Bruce Lee biography, his death was attributed directly as a result of lengthy ADR sessions without air conditioning. Get out of here. That sort of thing happened today. We didn't have that rumor when I was a kid. He also had his sweat glands removed. That had something to do with it too. But he basically overheated from being locked in that booth Um, for too long. So ADR studios are generally not tiny little booths, but rather very nice recording studios. (laughs) Well, this is in Taiwan. Another another theory shot to hell. No, I mean, it's po- no. <laughs> so what I was going to say was, sure, it's possible, but it's very hard on uh, electronic equipment for it to be really hot, too. So it's uh, it's kind of a double whammy to have an ADR studio um, allow itself to be ridiculously warm. It would be Especially hard on the Especially back equipment. then, yeah, even more so. The equipment would not handle it well and the people would not handle it well. But that being said, what do I know? I wasn't there. (laughs) Somebody told me when I was a kid that he was riding a motorcycle, had his his foot cut off in the desert and led to that. No, that's just probably, that's something he would have made up. Yeah, that's That's something kids would have made up (laughs) in my neighborhood too. Not not at all true. (laughs) Yeah. 
somewhere in Queens, people thought that that's how Bruce Lee died. No, there were most. Uh, I mean, it was, it was like you know that was like the day's rumor. You know, the next week they had something else. So my friends that worked there's in no ADR safety session required. <laughs> that one we never heard. Though. <laughs> so Kira, Kira, my friends that worked in in sound in New York, they always had a problem because they said that all of the sound jobs were moving to the West Coast, and they're you know they were working at studios that kept closing because they you know there's I, I think I don't even know if there's a sound studio that does post in New York anymore. I think they're all on the West Coast. That's bogus, man. That's bogus. No, Matt, That's Matt worked true. at one, Dave. That's he completely an Emmy. Yes, I mean, LA has been the hub of TV and film from the beginning, right? First of no, all. No, first it was in New York first. Can I go on? <laughs> it's a very long time ago, Charlie. <laughs> Thomas Edison had a studio over here. <laughs> So both New York and London have pretty significant sound presence, as do Vancouver, New Orleans, uh, you know, Atlanta. There are several other cities that are have sound uh, communities. But New York, it's used. Warner Brothers has a big studio in New York itself and in London. They just themselves, they have mixing stages, ADR stages, and editorial there. So are they just using that as an excuse because they can't get gigs? Well, there's less gigs. I mean, there's less gigs here, too. I told you, we've gone from teams of 20 to teams of four. <laughs> you know, just so, yeah, there are less jobs. There are fewer jobs than ever. Why but, has it gone from 20 to four? What, what's the reason? Um, Pro Tools, computers, as opposed to doing it on film, somewhat. I mean, nowadays we can... we can conform when I what I mean is that the the picture editor makes a bunch of changes right to the picture and I now have to take my beautiful cleaned up dialogue and chop it all up to match the new picture uh I can do that in you know a pretty short order these days I'm very good at it and I have the tools to do that in the old days you know those kinds of things were very difficult so you know the tools have just facilitated the process so that's really a good it is unless you're one of the people who can't get work well but every job that's replaced with technology you get like three other jobs i don't think that's true <laughs> that, that's i don't a, buy it a, I, I, my next question was about that actually because a couple of years ago adobe patented some software that may or may not be available to the consumer market where you could basically counterfeit anyone's voice and make it almost perfect, like the Photoshop of Yeah, that's vocals. blown. <laughs> well, Believe me, I they've mean, tried. They still try. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of times I get I, they people Frankenstein together the, the same actor and it doesn't sound good i mean so there's no auto-tune for acting is that what you're saying <laughs> i mean it i mean people's voices and performances are pretty customized and and anybody especially someone who you're going to hear talking in the movie the rest of the time if you were to try to just slip in a line even of a of a sound alike or a you know, some sort of auto-tuned version of it, it's going to stand out, no doubt. Even a Frankenstein version of that actor themselves where they've taken, you know, pieced together words from a few different takes is going to be really difficult to make sound smooth. You know, it's the tools just aren't quite that sophisticated yet. I mean, they are, they're getting there. There's a lot, but there's a lot you can do. So you've been the subject in, in multiple documentaries can you watch them? Is the sound on those documentaries up to your standards? <laughs> um, I have watched documentaries. I mean, it, it varies. Uh, you know, high 
quality documentary is high quality. Some of them are, are kind of down and dirty quality. I've worked on documentaries. The sound was really rough on. It just depends on on the doc. You know, they vary a lot. Oh, I'm, talk, I'm talking about like your, your scene in it. You're talking <laughs> in the documentary. Does it matter how good it sounds to you when it's the subject? You know, is it is you? Yeah, well, listening to my own voice is bad enough. And then on top of it, if the quality is bad, yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much a double whammy right there. <laughs> do you wish you like offered some advice on the set? <laughs> um, look, I'm not a... You didn't do enough documentaries to, to go deeper no, into this. I mean, I, look, interviews are their own beast, you know, and on-camera interviews are their own beast i really struggle with that i'm not a visual performer oh it's something different very different about a live show than someone sticking a camera at you in your living room and having you talk and i'm never very comfortable and it's probably obvious so speaking of uh interviews uh we were told that you were offered an interview in aarp magazine no and that there's there's some story there that's, That's not, not true. Your friend was messing with us. <laughs> She's a kidder. <laughs> you said your solo album is coming out. What's the setup for that? What does it sound like? I know it's hard to describe. I'm so excited, you guys. I mean, this is all coming about just uh, in the last couple of months. And actually some songs that I've been working on for years with my brother who, um, who works at um, Kitten Robot Studios and Kitten Robot Records, their studio now has a record label. They've asked me to to put out uh, a record, and and so we're doing it. Um, so I've been working on the layout, and 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 this is really the first time that I've been involved from soup to nuts because I've never done a solo record. So it's it's kind of exciting and and scary, and because I'm not a visual artist, I'm trying to set up the, the visuals on the CD and stuff. So well, it can't look uh, worse than the last. Like uh, so what it sounds like is um, it's kind of sparse. Uh, so it's reminiscent of Dose in that way. It is not, There are not a lot of instruments. There's a lot of, all of the songs are bass guitar written and driven. Uh, they all have singing on them. And they, it is mostly my voice. And my voice appears on all of them. There is another voice on there. And I do have some sort of guest performers doing various things on various songs. That's wonderful. When is that coming out? Do you have a release date for it? I do not, but we are li- very close to a t- timeline. I actually have an email in my inbox about timelines. So we're, we're getting very close. The layout is getting there. The, the songs have been sent to the mastering guy. Um, it's The sound is done aside from mastering and the layout is just about done and it's tap it's really happening it's happening this year i'm putting out my first solo record (laughs) are you nervous about it um no i mean that was part of i think the corner i turned is that i never felt like i cared to release any of this solo stuff i've been working on solo stuff you know for years and years and and i never cared what people thought i just thought that the whole idea of like distributing it was um it's kind of the bat it's kind of like being social right it's it's kind of like not the fun part the fun part is creating the music and what people think about it is not the fun part but then i finally got to the point with this set of music that i just I mean i sort of don't care what people think i don't expect it to be a popular <laughs> record you know it's weird especially if it's like well cure from black flag put out this record right it doesn't sound like black flag shockingly um so uh so i don't expect it necessarily 
necessarily to be everybody's cup of tea. And, and, and that whole part of me that was sort of like, I don't care to, to put it out and have it be critiqued. I'm just no longer, you know, that concerned about the, the blowback. <laughs> and, uh, and it just seemed like a good time. You know, I'm, like I said, I turned 60 and I'm putting my first solo record. Out. Are you hesitant to bring up your music? musicianship at work like is there anything that is there any kind of like fear of uh letting people know that like who you're working with you know especially someone you don't know too well so it's it's the most fun when it comes up sort of just accidentally in context i've had some pretty funny experiences with things just coming up in weird ways like i was i was talking about a dose gig i think uh, and we were on the mixing stage waiting for something which sometimes you just end up doing and uh uh, and this, uh, I was talking about the dose and I was like, and he's like, wow, that's so weird. You know, there's this other Kira who plays bass and he sort of, <laughs> you can see that his life, you know, sort of slowly the wheels start turning and he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? so, so it just hit him while I was sort of midway, just talking about playing bass and doing a gig or whatever. Like if he put together that I had this background and he knew of, you know, the old days and stuff. And I had another um, director who was in an ADR session and it was actually the recordist, the, the recording engineer came down from the booth and he just kind of leaned over to me. I just wanted to say I really loved it you know, you guys work in black, 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 you know, really quiet kind of over this, you know, and kind of goes back into the booth and the director kind of leans over to me, goes, me too. <laughs> you mentioned before you recorded animal sounds. Yes. As ADR. Is there any ever confusion between what sound effects and what's ADR? No. I mean, sometimes you rec you'll record some um, some animal sounds and then turn them over to the sound effects department. It depends on how much manipulation is involved. You know, if, if the if the animal is just to be used sort of organically as is, it's different than if they're going to manipulate those sounds into some sort of monster or creature. And both happen. We sometimes record things and then turn them into uh, creature type voices. And, and a lot of times then that it's turned over to the sound effects department. I've gotten to do some manipulation of voices for, for some of the movies I've worked on where, you know, the bad guy had a certain effect on his voice. I worked on Aquaman and we, we did an effect that made them talk underwater and, and, and tried to manipulate some of the dialogue so that there was an underwater sense to the voices. And, you know, there's some manipulation, but, but if there's any big manipulation to be done, it'll go to sound effect. Okay, so if like Michael Winslow from Police Academy movies came up, you'd be able to figure out what to do. That's my terrible <laughs> That's my terrible joke for this episode. <laughs> so it's pretty terrible. <laughs> well, you did do you did do Scoob, which was the Scooby Doo. Uh, so that was a, a human doing dog sounds, correct? Yes, he's actually been doing Scoob with Scooby Doo for many years. It was fascinating to meet him because he has been doing. He's a voice actor who's been doing not just Scooby Doo, but he is the voice of Scooby Doo, and it was interesting to meet him and have him do his thing because you know they'll be sitting in the ADR session and talking like a regular guy, right? And then he'll just go into his Scooby-Doo voice. 
<laughs> when when the beeps go off and he has to do his line, right? And and it's funny, actors do have their sensibility. Like I did, I worked on this other movie I talk about sometimes where actors are playing live action animals and Sylvester Stallone is playing a lion and, um, and Nick Nolte is playing a gorilla. And the difference of the two of them walking into the ADR stage was fascinating. I mean, as Sylvester Stallone walks in, you know, standing tall, looking like a dancer, basically, you know, just very <laughs> trim, put together, proper, walks up to the mic and then talking like in lion voice. Right now, Nick Nolte <laughs> comes in and he's sort of hunched over like a gorilla and he's got this gorilla cassette tape playing gorilla sound and he's like <laughs> snorting and he he's already in full gorilla character right before he gets anywhere near the mic so you know you just sort of method acting kind of thing you can bump into too of different people with their approaches to having to get into character is funny but yeah this the scoob guy he's very accomplished and he doesn't do much else these days than than come in and do Scooby-Doo. Do you ever get starstruck if you're if you're dealing with someone, or is that just not? She said part she of who met Scooby-Doo. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> is there a standard path to doing sound? Do you find a lot of your colleagues had similar kinds of like switches in the road? I don't think there is a path, especially. I mean, if I talk to someone right now who asks me how to get into it, I say don't. Just because that was my next question. Well, because <laughs> of what we've been talking about, right? How small the teams are, how there's fewer jobs. You know, plenty of people competing for fewer jobs, so it's it's not an easy field to get into, and and there isn't a path. It's very it's very much like how do I meet these sound supervisors who are going to hire me, right? How do I build these relationships? You know, it's there's no easy way to say how you get into these clicks. That was something that when I was first getting into this, I would ask people, it's like, how do you, you know, how do you get into someone's click? How do you be the one that they hire? You know, and the answer is you get lucky and you have a conversation with somebody, you bump into them on the lot or you are recommended by someone else. Like I was talking about, like someone who they like that they couldn't hire says, hey, you should hire Kira. So, uh, sounds terrifying. It is. There's no, there's no (laughs) path. And I've been, you know, I've been super lucky because. When I was working for these this low budget house sound house for four years, and that was starting to split up, I had no idea what was going to happen. It just happened to be that a picture editor that I had worked on his, on her very first picture editing job recommended me to someone saying I had worked really hard on the dialogue and he should give me a chance. You know, it was it's literally just sort of luck and and someone happens to give you a chance and then you bust your butt and and bend over backwards and they go, wow, I'm going to give her another chance or that was worth it. You know, um, like any of us, how do you market yourself? This tricky stuff, especially for an antisocial person. Well, I was going to say, obviously, Obviously, even though you'd prefer not to be around people, they seem to like you. <laughs> you know, you seem to you seem to still uh, be at the top of their list. Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of the sound supervisors I've worked with, or at least some of them, don't necessarily like me as a person. I would even say, you know, it's it, you got to hope that your skill set sort of speaks for itself, and so that way your weird 
odd duck personality doesn't uh, doesn't get in your way. It's a little bit more of that. For me, I'm not as good at the social graces, but I'm good at 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 showcasing my skill set and uh and and I you know I can think of a couple of people who have literally said to me when they were hiring me look I, I need you to be a little more low key <laughs> like how so <laughs> well because I have a pretty boisterous personality and because uh the, you have to read the room especially when i was younger that's not always easy to do is to know when to to jump up when to speak up uh, when to tell us a, a story you know to to be a part of and when to just shut your mouth and um and especially when i was younger that was a little harder to uh to figure out out and uh, and plus the supervisor wants to develop their own relationship with the clients and they don't want you your personality to uh, supersede theirs so sometimes it's it's like that where they're not maybe they're not that good at the social graces so they don't want you to be the big personality in the room the layers of uh here is as the layer of being a woman also Putting a challenge on top of the challenge? Yes and no. I mean, dialogue, it does tend to be where uh, women are. There are very few well-known sound effects women. There are very few well-known uh, mixer women. That's getting to be a little less uncommon. And actually, there is these days, because you have all the obvious reason is a little bit of change happening in that way where you have female directors wanting to hire more women and people being a little bit more aware of the inequities so but certainly within the teams i would say that i've experienced a certain amount of that feeling of being an outsider because of that um, and you grow up as a girl and a woman you're you've kind of been through that your whole life so it, it's not it's not an unusual thing and you know to expect it so you just kind of put up with it. I mean, still in the last few years, I I've had, you know, important directors walk into the mixing stage and have my supervisor and in literally introduce all the men in the room and not introduce myself and maybe one other woman that's sitting and you just it boggles the mind sometimes i just get up and introduce myself it just depends on the situation and other times you just sit there and you recognize that things are still that way well, let's not end on that i think that's, no, I know, that's not exactly what i was thinking <laughs> we, we can always we can always fix it in post <laughs> so they say <laughs> I know you mentioned, you know, this is something that you don't talk about a lot in interviews. And, and thank you so much for doing this, by the way. It does mean a lot. Is there a question that you've always wanted someone to ask you in an interview that they've never asked you? I don't think so. I mean, I've been asked a lot of questions. I, I can tell you my least favorite question. Okay. What's it like to be a girl in Black Flag? Uh. Because, like, how can I answer that? It's like, I don't know what it's like to be a guy. So, <laughs> like, what is it like to be a guy doing an interview, right? It's like you can't you can't answer what it's like to be a girl at anything, right? Because I promise you, when we interview Bill Stevenson, I'm going to ask him what it's like to be a guy in black. Okay, cool. <laughs> Wait, Bill Stevenson has a job? Yeah, he runs, he runs a studio. <laughs> he runs a studio. He does. This is awesome. I really appreciate your time, Kira. This is Kira, really thank fun. you so much. Yeah, this is <laughs> wonderful. Thank you guys. Thanks for, for having a, something different to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that a few times. <laughs> no, 
it's funny because it's, it's when I was trying to ask my friend how to talk to you guys, I was like, yeah, I think it's like punkers who work, punkers with jobs. Yeah. Well, yeah, the whole thing was like, it's hard to explain because people think we have different types of guests and we have, we're not going, we're not asking people just because people are going to see their name and they're going to say, oh, I, I love that person's music because we're probably not going to talk about the music in a way that they're going to be excited about it. Nor do I think that's we don't think that's interesting. I mean, like it is interesting in the sense that it's music that we all love. And I, I hope you can tell we all come from a background of like loving music and we've all played in bands and done all that stuff. But having you tell the same stories that you've told so many times and, and, and have to do all that, A, it's not interesting for you. B, it's it's not going to be interesting for anyone else who can already go on the internet and find all of that stuff. I'd rather mine that territory of how do you take everything from an an ideal standpoint and a personality standpoint and how does how do people that we know from music make their lives work or don't in that professional world. So we will talk to people that have been incredibly successful. And we've had a couple of people we've spoken to where they're like, I hate my job and I wish I was still playing music full time. And I wish I was touring. And I, I don't think we had anyone who hated their job. Yeah. <laughs> we've been trying to avoid that. Dan Schaefer from Screeching Weasel definitely hated his job. He liked it. He liked it. He said, uh, I can listen to my Walkman all day. <laughs> <laughs> Having a job you can be a cog in the wheel is, for some people, is just right because you don't want to engage all of your energy in it. Well, yeah, that's that's like it's like Bukowski being a postman. We want to mix it up. And, and, and <laughs> the, the, it's just as just as valid to say, you know, I I do my job and I go home day and I forget everything, and that's great, the best thing in the world as it is to say like. I live for work and I love it and that kind of things. And, and I'm successful. Success is, is based on what you make of it. I think that's, that's our main message here. Hell no. Success is being able to not think about money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, I always said, you know, I just want to make enough money so that I don't have to think about. It. Sounds kind of weird. But- We've had guests that, that definitely disagreed with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I also think that some people have that you get caught in the in the hamster wheel too. Though you start, you know, you get you say, if I make this amount, I'm not going to care anymore. And then you get to that point, and you're, you know, whatever, and, and it becomes more no. About you're money. thinking about money, then you see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you've exposed them, Kira. <laughs> it's tricky. I'm just my real point was just that if you're lucky enough to be to a point where. For you, you're just not having to think about that all the time about about paying the bills. That's big. It's just big to not have the bills be the the big weight sitting on your head. You know. Well, they've even said, hasn't there been a study? I think sociologists said that there's a a certain level of income where you're not living paycheck to paycheck and you feel comfortable enough. And any more money than that doesn't lead to a higher level of happiness. It just leads to the whole $75,000, but not New York city. I think it is $75,000, but yeah, it's probably not, probably not in New York city or Or LA LA or San Francisco. Yeah. (laughs) You guys, thank you so much. And thanks for talking about other things and thanks for trying to have a sense of humor. I'm sorry. I don't have. (laughs) Thanks for being part of some great movies. The records are pretty good, too. Thanks. Thank you, Kira. All right. You have a great night, Kira. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is going jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. 
Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com.